I'm Dr. Michelle Plaster, and you're listening to Between Two White Coats, a podcast where we dig into key issues surrounding health and wellness. I'm a family medicine doctor, and my co-host, Amber Foster, is a family medicine nurse practitioner. In our combined 30 years in medicine, we've seen a lot. We're discussing some of our biggest questions, obstacles, and patient-centered advice in hopes of educating you and keeping you informed. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you have found this podcast helpful, give us a five-star rating and review. This helps other people find our podcast. And make sure you share it with your friends. Thank you for your time. We look forward to serving you. It is an honor and a privilege to have Dr. Kathleen Jeffrey with us today while we talk about uh, topics related to breast cancer. I'm going to let everyone know why we are so thrilled you're here by going through a little bit of your history and your accomplishments. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey is the first female board certified breast health surgeon in the Athens area where she sees patients at St. Mary's Breast Health Center. She uh, came here from Greenwood, South Carolina. Uh, and prior to that, we have something in common that I found when I was digging through your past information. You are a graduate of Ohio State University. Oh, yeah. Go Buckeyes. Your, go Buckeyes. I grew <laughs> Especially up in, this season. <laughs> yes. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Did you really? And there oh would be gosh, plenty of Buckeyes listening to us because I make all yes. my high school friends listen to the podcast. Oh, so, yeah. That's awesome. Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. So that's we both really have neat. some Buckeye roots. Yep. Um, and so uh, Dr. Jeffrey went to Ohio State for both her bachelor's and med school and then found her way to Georgia from there, correct? Mm -hmm, Where you were at residency at Medical College of Georgia, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then did some work over in South Carolina, and then found your way back to uh, Athens area. Um, Lucky for us. Um, Among some of your accomplishments, uh, you spearheaded the development of the high-risk breast clinic and breast center at Self Regional Hospital, you have received the Medical College of Georgia's Golden Apple Faculty Teaching Award. It's one thing to know things. It's another to be able to teach it. That's so true. that is uh, remarkable. Um, and you're a member of the American Society of Breast Surgeons um, within the American College of Surgeons. And uh, super accomplished, but more importantly, a super compassionate doctor mm-hmm. that I never hesitate to send my patients to. Um, you know, you typically find the people after we are suspicious of something. That's right. Um, whether we're sending you the patients who have a significant family history and we're just not quite sure what we need to do to make sure that if there is a cancer in the horizon, breast cancer, that we catch it early. Yeah. Um, or whether we're fi- you're getting the abnormal mammograms or the lumps and bumps that we are concerned about. Um, it is a huge um relief for us to be able to say, this woman's going to treat you like you are her family and she's going to take good care of you and you will feel comfortable there. You just saw one of my patients who's an older woman who I can never talk into going to see other doctors. (laughs) I can't talk her into seeing other doctors. She's pretty convinced I should take her gallbladder out. Can't you do it, Dr. Pasta? (laughs) And, uh, And she was so relieved after meeting you. And that makes it much easier for her to go that next step and get the other things done. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. I'm happy to help on those things. It is a... It is a um, calling, I think, to work in field where you see cancer patients and you're helping people through a very stressful time, a very stressful diagnosis. 
Um, tell me what drew you to breast surgery? Well, I think it's personal, um, probably more than anything. My mother got breast cancer when I was in medical school. And, you know, unfortunately, I didn't know as much as I knew now to, to help her through the process, but she did die of her disease. Um, my mother-in-law got breast cancer as well yeah. when I was in surgery residency. So it really just became a very natural progression for me and it happened organically. Um, so from the very beginning of when I came out of training, I, I focused on breast only and I love it. And I think with something like this, you've got to love what you do yeah. because it is a stressful, emotionally stressful uh, kind of job, but your patients are relying on your your compassion, your your love of what you do, your confidence in what you're doing, and I think all those things come together. And so, yeah, it's very personal. The reason I went to it, and I feel so gratified that I've done it because I might not have been able to do something for my mother, but I can do something for all these other people. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that story. Um, I, I I feel like when we have this personal calling, you really can meet people. Um, in knowing what they're going through because oh, yeah. you've loved people who went through exactly the same. That's absolutely true. Uh, tell me, as we talk a little bit about uh, breast cancer screening, breast cancer screening is becoming this uh, more and more difficult from us in the primary care to even know what to tell people. What age do we start screenings and um, what kind of screening should people be getting? So help guide us through when to start and what kind of screening should be happening. Well, I think the confusion is natural because you've got so many different organizations within the medical community weighing in on their recommendations and not all of them are aligned. Mm -hmm. So I think that what I rely on as a surgeon and I think also the American College of Radiology rely on. So we have our ACR recommendations. We have our American College of Surgeons recommendations. We have our American Society of Breast Surgeons recommendations. Those are all fairly aligned, and that's what I rely on. There are USPTSF guidelines that, you know, I tend to, to stick with ours. Those are a little bit different. What I tell people is if they have a family history of breast cancer, they could maybe get their first screening mammogram at 35 and then start annual or every other year at 40 to 50, but definitely every year after 50. Now, one interesting question I got before when I was doing a talk to a group is, when do I stop? Because a lot of people say, I mean, I'm 85. Do I keep having mammograms? This is a little tougher because the recommendation is you, at least from the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and that's a lot of what I will say today is, is where I come from, um, is say if your life expectancy is less than five years, you probably don't need to be getting mammograms anymore. But now that's crystal ball science a little bit right. because how do you know? But I think the bottom line is if you've got a lot of comorbidities, you've got an elderly patient, then getting mammograms is really low on the list of priorities for them. So I think that's one thing to take into consideration. Now, it gets a little more nebulous when you start talking about adding other kinds of tests like MRI. So that's a whole different segment of the population because you have high-risk patients that don't fall into this standard mammogram recommendation. Before we jump into the high risk yeah. or people with significant family histories where we're going to modify the recommendations, um, that person who is, we'll say, normal risk uh, and starting, maybe gets a baseline at 35, but starting 40 to 50 um, every year or every two years. And and this is where I, I sit in Struggle. the same seat. It depends on who you're, who you're um, looking at, who's making right. the recommendation. Right. And I think I think you could not be wrong going every other year or every year between 40 and 50. I think that probably is could be guided by the patient and their anxiety levels when it comes to breast things, their history, if they've had previous previous biopsies themselves or something that would just make it more comfortable for them to having yearly surveillance. 
Um, so I think that those things weigh in. And certainly that initial mammogram can help you as well, because based on what that shows, very dense breast or something like that, that may prompt you to then go, oh, well, let's go every year. Got it. Very good. And gold standard screening for breast cancer would be what test? So mammogram. Yeah. Um, you For a standard screening mammogram, you want something that's not expensive, is well applied throughout the country, and can be read by most radiologists without difficulty. So that is the gold standard. I mean, people always ask about MRIs, but those are not the gold standard. They're good tests, but they're expensive. So you have to get something as a screening tool that's easy, accessible, and not very expensive. 2D, uh, you know, uh, thank goodness, uh, Dr. Flint and I had a great conversation about how much advancement there's been in science period, especially in the world of cancer. Um, so 3D mammogram wasn't something we talked about years and years back, but 2D mammogram or 3D mammogram? So I would say universally, probably 3D is your, your answer. Now, there's a trial that's going on that, that has been looking at 3D as, as being the standard the gold standard and applying that universally. Um, that will not populate, I don't think, for the next couple of years. It's called the TMIS trial. But the nice thing about 3D mammograms, as opposed to 2D, is what would happen is people get 2D mammograms, and then they really couldn't see some things, so they'd call them back for diagnostic studies. The thing about 3D that's kind of eliminate that is there's decreased callbacks. So you get a better visual field. Now, right now, the cost of 3D is sometimes, depending on your insurance, a little bit more, not significant. So many times when you go somewhere, they may say, do you want 3D? They'll give you the option because it is a slightly higher cost. Again, slightly higher. Many insurance companies have jumped on board and that's, uh, you know, they're just paying for that because they know it is a better survey for those patients. Yeah, and So I think 3D is really... I, I the lean way that go. way with my patients as well. And I will often tell patients it may cost you um, an amount of money up front that, and you know, from what I hear, it's maybe 50, maybe 50 to 70, not or, very yeah. expensive. But if you get a call back, if you have dense breast tissue and you get a call back, that's not necessarily considered your screening test. No. Now that's a diagnostic test. Now and you're going to pay more for that. You even more than that 50 exactly. to $70. So exactly. it may be worth that upfront money. Um, uh, you... And the one thing I'll tell you about that, and I don't mean to interrupt you, oh, but no, right a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's it hurts more, it's it's more x-ray. It's about a four-second difference on some of the machines. So okay. that's how much more time you're in the machine because there was some concern that, well, there's longer x-ray exposure and things. No. Okay. That's, that's really shown to be not significant. Good. Now, you actually look at mammograms. I look at mammogram reports. Um, tell me the difference between a 2D and a 3D. Well, a 3D is really just getting more images throughout there, and they do tomosynthesis, so they get a different kind of read through it. So you get more images. You don't just have the static two images in the MLO and the lateral positions and, and the CC positions. Okay. So you really have just multiple images through it and different techniques as well. And for those people who have got a callback, you know that what typically will happen is there's an area of suspicion. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes it may just be that they couldn't see it really well right. um, or it hid behind a little dense breast tissue. Right. And so then you come back for the spot compression mammogram where they kind of, I like to say to patients, they zoom in yes. on the suspected area so they, the radiologist can see it better. Yep. And sometimes an ultrasound. And right. uh, and that callback, uh, you know, in all transparency, uh, my first or second mammogram I ever got, I got the callback. 
And, you know, I've always told patients, don't worry, people get called back all the time. Oh, didn't I call my best surgeon friend and ask her to look at the mammogram and tell her if I should go ahead and schedule my double mastectomy like that? And and she was like, no, I think... We go to the cliff. Yes, I think you're overreacting. You just need to go get a spot compression. And everything was fine. But then when I was in that patient scenario, I could appreciate how anxiety provoking it is to get the callback. Absolutely. If it's not necessary to get the callback and we can get better pictures. Since that, I went on and did 3Ds every time and I haven't had a callback since. It's just that slightly better picture. Yeah. And I think that's breast surgery as a whole. It's a very angst provoking field and breast disease because the moment someone says, we're not sure, or the radiologist starts looking a little closer, or you're st- sitting in the office a little longer than you yes. expected, all b- the minds start to go to the worst case scenario. Yes. It's just a natural thing. So I would agree with you that you kind of have to just, there's just a shadow perhaps, and we'll see when we get diagnostic, but that disappeared yeah. and dissipated. But you want to have somebody looking that closely to say, yeah, we're going to make sure. And if it's, you know, something that they do find, well, thank goodness we found it. Yeah. And that's kind of how you have to um, frame that, I think, or look at it from a patient perspective. Now, jumping back a little to the screening, what about the patients who have a significant family history? First, how would we define a significant family history? Is that one grandmother or a great aunt? No, there are very clear guidelines. So when I see patients, and you mentioned it when you introduced me, is one of the big things I think is so important why I started back itself was the high-risk breast clinic. Because so many women say, oh, you know, my grandmother had it. What does that mean for me? And they walk around going, do I just live and wait yeah. for something to happen or the ball to drop? So we want to have an opportunity for those women to have a place to go to feel like somebody's keeping tabs for me. I don't have to worry about this because they're going to watch it closely. The other thing about high risk is when we can identify those patients, we can kind of get ahead of it. That's the one area where we can be proactive and we can potentially prevent cancer from developing. So what I have done in my office as part of the high-risk screening clinic is I have a, a hand up. Everybody gets it. I don't care if they're there for breast pain, they're there for breast cancer, they're there for a benign lump. They fill out that, that screening questionnaire. And it's based on the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines. So there is a series of questions that if you respond yes to any of these questions, you are qualified for genetic testing. Now, what are those things? So they take into account certain cancers. And these are the cancers we ask about are the ones that are scientifically documented to be associated with mutations. So not all organ system cancers are well associated with mutations, but there are some. So when we have breast cancers in family relatives, now we say if you have a family relative first degree relative with breast cancer less than 50, you qualify. You have three relatives on the same side of the family with breast cancer, you qualify. No it doesn't matter what, what degree, age. No matter what age. Yep. Doesn't matter what okay. age or anything. So three first or second degree we look at. So okay. we look at mom, grandmother, aunts, uncles, cousins. We don't go to great aunts and great Got grandmothers it. and things first like or that. Second so first and second of any degree. Age, right. That would be three. If you have any ovarian cancer, you qualify. Any pancreatic cancer, you qualify. Any colon cancer under 50, you qualify. Same thing with uterine or cervical cancer. Prostate cancer, high grade. And we talk about Gleason scores. Many patients don't know what that is, but usually you can ask them, did your relative die of prostate cancer? Mm -hmm. Then you can kind of assume that's a high grade. Any of those things, Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Yes, you qualify for genetic testing. In those scenarios, we then have the patient talk to a genetic counselor. If they choose after that to provide a sample, we get a sample and we send it off and do a standard 35 gene panels. There are other gene panels. I know you've talked about that previously, but there are other different gene panels. But this this 35 gene panel we use is, to me, the most scientifically documented 
group of genes that we can really make some guidance decisions on. Perfect. Yeah. And then based on that allows you to know if you're going to change the recommendations Correct. for typical screenings. Correct. So one of the things that can come from that testing is when you get your test results, you can have any number of mutations. You can have one mutation that might put you in an increased risk for breast cancer, but not, might not be just high enough to say, well, you need to have your breast off prophylactically. But it tells you you're at a higher risk. You may have been at a 25 or 35% risk over your lifetime. We usually calculate that to age 85, but over your lifetime. And if you're in that risk category, we may not say you need to have your breast off, but guess what? We might want to add MRIs into the mix mm -hmm. to really be surveying that breast much more closely than we would the average person. And one other thing I would mention too on mammograms, and particularly at St. Mary's when we do mammograms, you always get a score on your mammogram. If you look at your report, you look at the top, it'll say she has a lifetime risk score or tyrocusic score, we call it or IBIS score, there's other ones called BRCAPRO, and it tells you your score. And they'll say at the bottom, you're at increased risk. If you're at increased risk, a lot of times I see those patients and we make a surveillance plan. Okay. They may not have a genetic mutation, but based on all their history, when they had their start of their first periods, how many pregnancies they've had, breastfeeding, um, use of hormones, I mean, all the, and family history, all go into play for that calculation. And then they may be at increased risk despite no mutation. And then we would change their surveillance based on that. And is that a person that instead of just seeing the primary care and getting the, hopefully getting the mammogram referral uh, annually or, or every two years, they might follow at your center and absolutely different recommendations with people who specialize in, um, in breast cancers, geneticists and surgical uh, uh, breast surgeons to yep. be able to say, um, let's let's really specialize in and make sure we're customizing a different surveillance plan for you. Absolutely. That is what we want to see in our high-risk clinic. Not just mutations, but people with high risk based on calculated models. And so we can follow those patients. What I typically will do is do staggered mammograms and MRIs. So what that means is they'll get a yearly mammogram, they'll get a yearly MRI, but they're staggered six months apart mm. so that they're getting some surveillance every six months. And then I'll follow them every year after their MRI, just to give them that clinical exam, the close radiologic surveillance. And then we're really just staying on top. And I think there are a lot of people that have a lot of comfort knowing, okay, we're, we're being on top of this. We're not gonna let any stone go unturned. Yes, And absolutely. so I think, and I just had someone probably a month ago, we were on that surveillance plan, no lumps, no masses, nothing, you know, clinically found a cancer very early. And that's the goal. We want to catch that's them early. The and that's, that's right. now again, MRI is not for everybody, but when you're identified in that high risk category, we want to pull those patients out and, and treat them a little bit differently. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, what about the lumps and bumps that people find? Not everybody gets mammograms. Maybe people are not of age to start getting recommended, or there may be males that aren't being screened and breast cancer is less frequent there, but still possible. So someone finds a lump or a bump, what would your recommend, recommendation be for that person? So age plays in quite a bit. Obviously, we're not mammogramming 15-year-olds. We're not mammogramming 20-year-olds. And the reason is, is because their breasts are so dense that you're not going to get a really good reading. And recommendations for mammograms are pretty sparse under the age of 30 because of that density. So, but you do have other tools. You can do ultrasounds. You can do MRIs for some younger women. Um, but for my patients, let's say they're very young women, and I get quite a few of them because young girls get what's called fibroadenomas. They're benign mm -hmm. tumors. 
but they show up at these lumps and girls panic because they tell mom, I've got this lump. I don't, and everybody gets nervous. Just like you said, it's an anxiety provoking thing. So what I'll do is I'll see my office and a lot of times I'll just ultrasound them right there and tell them what it looks like. So it might be a cyst, which is easy. I can aspirate a cyst right in the office mm-hmm. and then it goes away and everybody's happy. Lump you know? Yep. Yeah. If there's anything concerning when I aspirate the cyst, I could send that off and have it evaluated. I can uh, biopsy a fibroadenoma in the office. If I don't find something on, on ultrasound, but we're seeing a lump or something, I might order tests with radiology to make sure we've completely exhausted every possibility. And again, probably on ultrasound. And if there's high risk, we might do an MRI, not typically on a 15 year old, but certainly that age. Certainly what you see and feel when you see that patient can dictate a lot of things. So if I get a lady, you know, and you know as well as I do, there's a lot of patients that say, I don't like doing mammograms. So mm-hmm. they may come in three years of no mammograms with a mass. It's clearly a cancer and I can tell it's a cancer. So what I might do is biopsy right then, but we're going to get mammograms, ultrasound, everything. We're just going to go straight to diagnostic on that person because they have a mass. And that's the difference. That's, so we talk about screenings and we talk about diagnostics. When you have a clinical condition of your breast, usually you're going to get diagnostic on that patient. You're not going to go to screening first. Screening is for asymptomatic patient. Right. And the diagnostic allows us to really zoom in Correct. on the area of concern and get a better test. And, and in most cases, they're going to get an ultrasound as well in those cases when it's a palpable mass or nipple discharge or something like that. And for men, we see plenty of men that'll come in, particularly as they get older in life, they'll have gynecomastia. Mm-hmm. So they'll have lumps. But guess what? Men get breast cancer. And some of them have genetic mutations that they got from their parents. And I've treated men with BRCA1 mutations who have breast tissue. And you believe it or not, men can get mammograms. Mm-hmm. It's not fun mm-hmm. and they don't like the idea, but you can get it. We can do ultrasound on men's. So there's so on men's. So there's lots of things we can do for men as well. Um, but those are all things that kind of go into the, the mix of things. So if men were to find a breast change that are a lump or bump or even an increase in breast tissue, um, use the phrase gynecomastia when there's enlarged breast at right then that would be something that they could see you for and look for different, making sure that it's not problematic right. and even looking for different solutions if it's something that is causing them issues. Yeah. And, you know, I have a 17-year-old son and you talked, you have a son. And these boys these days, you know what they're doing now is they're starting these hormones. They all want to be on steroids for when they're in sports. I, oh, I no. hear about this all the time. Well, I see all kinds of these young guys that have been on steroids. And guess what? One of the complications is the steroids, breast growth. Yeah. If we told them that at the beginning, maybe they would yes. take them, Yes, and right? my husband, my son, one morning said, oh, I think I want to do these. I, You may know, are they called SARS? Or there's oh, a name. There's a name now, for these. Have to look this yeah, up. so there's a name for these hormones that these kids take as supplements. And he said, I'm thinking, I said, well, you can do that, but you may get breast. <laughs> so you choose. <laughs> Muscles or breast. And he said, I'm good, Mom. Hey, yeah, no, so, he, that, yeah. that cut that right out of the picture. Right, absolutely. <laughs> um, so if someone gets a, a, a abnormal finding on their breast, uh, on their breast screening, um, abnormal finding on a mammogram or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of different, I think people all over end up in a lot of different places sure. when they have the abnormal finding. Um, I particularly lean toward sending them your way and to breast surgeons and breast centers, because I just feel like it's under one roof. Right. Uh, a lot of people who do this all day, every day and can really meet someone where they are and help alleviate their concerns and get to the bottom of things in a timely fashion. Right. 
Um, which, you know, let me just offer you a thank you on the timely fashion as well, because I don't know if you sleep or get to go home on some days. <laughs> there, but, I take it home with me a lot. <laughs> yeah, but we, I mean, when we find abnormal mammograms, it's it's a tough place to be when, especially mm-hmm. if it's someone who has increased risk uh, and that doesn't sit well with them. So I, nothing makes me more upset than when I call a center and they say, yeah, we'll get that repeat or that spot compression mm-hmm. in four weeks. Yeah, that doesn't And then you've fly. got four weeks of purgatory that you're sitting oh, in. Oh, no, yeah. no, that's terrible. Your, your center is quick to get people yeah. in and helps uh, speak to them one-on-one, alleviate their concerns. Join us on our next episode as we continue our discussion of breast cancer with Dr. Jeffrey. We like to leave you on a positive note. Today's Tell Me Something Good is vacations. This year, I'm planning a couple of special trips with some friends of mine. One is to Disneyland in California for my friend's 40th birthday. Um, I actually have a fun trip coming up. Well, I think it's going to be fun. I'm going with middle schoolers to Savannah for a school trip. So that may or may not be such a blast, but I am looking forward to spending time with my daughters. So take some time, think about something fun you can do this year and go ahead and plan it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself.